The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. The Dow closes at a record high while Treasury yields spike as investors grow confident over the economic recovery. But tech stocks take a hit amid a rotation out of the sector. OPEC and its allies stick to the script, betting on a minimal demand impact from Omicron and agreeing to boost output for the seventh straight month. China Mobile jumps as investors largely shrug off valuation and blacklisting concerns in the country's biggest domestic IPO in a decade. And COVID cases continue to spike across Europe as the UK and France both report record daily infections. Fresh records for the Dow again. Uh, we kicked off the start of 2022 with fresh highs for both the Dow and S&P. But in session yesterday, it was just the Dow reaching for fresh territory. Tech stocks undermining the direction for the S&P, but also for the Nasdaq. So the Dow eking another six-tenths of a percent. Of note has been investors reaching for value areas of the market. A real catch-up trade as they begin this year. That's where they're placing their bets at this stage. And worth noting, there have been some more elevated concerns about the pace of tightening in the United States. That is just knocking some of the big technology names off course. In terms of sectors of the markets, financials at a fresh record in session, industrials and consumer staples all closing at fresh territory. So it was a, a very strong start again for that catch-up trade uh, across the boards yesterday. I want to take you to Treasury markets because the bond market's also reflecting some changes around monetary policy, more pricing around the expectation of a March kickoff on a rate hike this year. And you can see the short end at uh, three quarters of 1%. And the long end also rallying as well, which is interesting as the bond market may be showing us a, a glimmer of expectations around growth still being supported. 1.64% where we're trading on that 10-year this morning. I want to take you to the technology names because uh, the outlook on the horizon for the rate story is just knocking the sector. The valuation argument too, the real escalation we've seen around valuations for the sector during the pandemic, just causing some concern and a bit of a pause really for some of these big stocks Worth noting a day earlier, we were talking about Apple having a $3 trillion market cap during the trading session. It gave back some territory yesterday, falling one and a quarter percent in session across the board. You can see other falls. Nvidia down 2.75%, 1% down on Netflix. Uh, the likes of Amazon retreating 1.7%. And the high flyer where we saw double digit increases a day earlier, Tesla gave back territory down more than 4%. So a lack of cover really from some of those big name tech stocks to support this area of the market. Market yesterday. The banks, by comparison, are eking out more gains and a real contrast as you take a look at the ETFs. Some of the regional banks, but also the major banks, all jumping strongly. You can see gains of close to 4% for Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and in that territory for Morgan Stanley. So, very strong performance is what we saw across those lenders. Steve, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Belated, Karen. Apologies. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot going on in these markets. And as viewers will know by now, some of the minutiae in the data I get mildly obsessed about. I'm pleased to say 
lot of other people are getting very excited about the jolts data as well because the great resignation is continuing uh, in the United States despite many people saying oh it's going to abate anytime soon uh, well it have a look at these numbers. Uh, the Labour Department reported the JOLTS data, the jobs openings and labour market uh, turnover survey, reported a record figure, record figure of 4.5 million people quitting their jobs in November. Now, the bulk of the quits came from restaurants, healthcare workers, accommodation, leisure, uh, job openings in America, though, still stunningly high, 10.6 million. Now, that is a fall from the highest levels we saw of 2021. But you've got to remember that there aren't six point, uh, beg pardon, 10.6 million workers looking for jobs in America at the moment with that low participation rate, which we've also talked about a lot. Basically, there's unemployed of around about 6.9 million uh, and there are 10.6 million uh, job openings. Fascinating, isn't it? I think so. Uh, manufacturing, I should mention this as well, not particularly inflationary for those of you on Inflation Watch as well. Activity in the US slowed in December, uh, according to the ISM Manufacturing Index, which came in at 58.7. That is the lowest reading since January 2021. The report also showed supply chain constraints were easing. Again, not inflationary parts of the data, uh, as prices paid by manufacturers saw their biggest fall Biggest fall since October 11th. So that's absolutely fascinating. I know, Karen, you and I are going to have a chat here as well. It seems a very obvious narrative that uh, we can paint this morning. I NASDAQ falling because yields, as you mentioned, picking up with a 1.6 handle now uh, on the Treasuries. Uh, and that's because, of course, people are thinking about interest rate hikes and looking at data such as the jolts. But of course, we've got ADP today, private sector job service uh, survey. We've got jobless claims tomorrow uh, and payroll on Friday as well. But I just want to flag up an article because I know our viewers uh, like to be well read and I'm not here to tout cnbc.com but I do say to you now go and look to cnbc.com with an article which I hope you saw it came out between Christmas and New Year uh, and it's looking at wage hikes in the US and I'm fascinated by wage hikes because if it is coming into the system and it becomes more mainstream then we talk about the second round effects and the pressure is going to put on margins and obviously that's going to have effects on corporate balance sheets and profitability and of course in interest rate. Now, the article uh, is an excellent article. It's by one of our staff writers, Amelia Lucas, and it's saying that more than half of US states will raise their minimum wage this year. More than half of US states raising their wages, uh, but employers are hiking faster. Now, workers, of course, are pushing to earn uh, $15 an hour. Uh, we have a pathetically low federal rate of, I think it's $7.25 as well, which for some reason, politicians decided they couldn't push through uh, Congress last year, despite, of course, the administration trying to push it through. 26 states putting their minimum wage up this year as well. Uh, California, parts of New York are some of the key uh, states to look at. They're paying a minimum of 15 bucks as well. But it was interesting looking at the BLS data in this wages and salaries increased 4.2% uh, in the 12 months ending September 2021. And there's a lot more in there about Amazon. Uh, putting wages up as well, about Costco putting up a minimum wage to 17 bucks, uh, Hobby Lobby to 18.50 as well. There's a lot happening in this space, Karen. Wages, it also takes us back to that broader conversation around inflation expectations. And worth noting, the bond market wasn't sitting on the sidelines yesterday. Very active. Uh, you saw repricing effectively and uh, now at a 63% chance for a March rate hike. That's up from a week earlier from about 57% chance. So the market anticipating we'll see a pull forward of activity, which does not give us a lot of time and uh, not a lot of time for market participants to just sit on the sidelines and wait around placing their bets. I think it was worth noting you have seen a lot of big 
moves in individual stocks at the start of this year. So investors are putting those bets on the recovery names. And banks, as we talk about the prospect of higher rates, has been a, a real standout performer in recent session. And so I think the money is going quickly into channels where they do think we're going to see some benefits around the repricing of money. Uh, when it comes to technology, just worth noting, uh, there has been clearly a lot of leadership from that sector and we've seen a huge makeup of the S&P 500 from those constituents in the technology sector, which means we have very stretched valuations in the United States versus other markets. And I think at this point, viewers are going to have to make a call as to whether they think those big technology names can be supported here, even in a tightening environment, which does give us the um, uh, information in a couple of weeks' time that we have to, to stew on what we're going to get from earnings season this time round. Well, it'll be a little bit rearview mirror, the, the very strong pandemic trend still, but also what we see from the C-suite lying ahead. And I think that's going to be quite instrumental. If you look at the what we're trading on, 28 times um, earnings is evaluation for the U.S. tech sector versus 21.8 times uh, earnings for 2022 for the, the broader S&P 500. Uh, that's a fairly elevated level, you've got to say. But again, if you're an investor, do you pay up for the quality that tech performs or tech delivers at this stage? And will it continue to perform over the course of this year? Uh, I think, again, that's the judgment, Steve, a lot of investors are going to have to make as you see such a strong rotation at the start of this year. Where does technology lie in that rotation story? Yeah, I, I think they're absolutely spot on, Karen. So, you know, uh, from here, it, 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 and, and there's, there's a lot of people speaking about this already saying, look, hang on, every time any sector or the broader markets have sold off, it's been the most gorgeous buying opportunity of all time. And I hear what those people are saying. So when they're looking at that NASDAQ underperformance, they're saying, oh, well, this is great. I can get in as well. But what you've got to remember is that there's an awful lot of stocks away from those big names, and we, we can talk about those as well, that aren't rallying back every single time that are falling aggressively. I mean, uh, a product I love, but I wouldn't touch the company because I'm just worried. Well, I mean, I, I won't say it, but there's a lot of companies out there, for instance, who have brilliant marquee products that you look at their share price, they've gone one way, one way since their IPOs uh, and one way in the whole of 2021 as well. And a lot of illustrious names on that list, but I, I, I shouldn't uh, mention any individual product as well. Uh, thanks, Karen. Let's move on to something that is uh, clearly only moving one way at the moment, and that appears to be oil. Uh, prices, uh, well, my read says higher, but I'll just tell you that Brent's just dipped back below 80 bucks, only just a tiny bit as well. After OPEC Plus producers agreed on Tuesday to continue their program of gradual monthly output increases. Now, the alliance will begin hiking output by 400,000 barrels per day next month, continuing with the plan to gradually replace its output cut from the start of the pandemic. Uh, the move had been broadly expected given US pressure to boost supply and no major new COVID restrictions. <laughs> well, Hadley, I read that and then I, I read it in disbelief as well because I, I've got a feeling when the US put the pressure onto OPEC, OPEC just turned around and said, uh, maybe you should sort out your own oil production and let us get on with what we're doing. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Good morning to you, my friend. Uh, not at all cynical, Steve, not at all. I think you're exactly right. And what's interesting is Washington welcoming um, this move that was widely expected, adding that 400,000 barrels per day in February. This is not a, a meeting that really had any big surprises for OPEC watchers, as you know. But I think it's interesting to think about this within the broader context of what's happening in the energy space. Obviously, we saw um, Brent hitting above 80 uh, yesterday and a little bit earlier uh, today in the last several hours. I think it's also interesting to think about this with regards to what we heard from Halima Croft yesterday. I was 
speaking to her for an OPEC plus preview, if you will. And she was essentially saying there are wild cards to be watching. And one of them is the Iran nuclear negotiations. But bigger than that, of course, are the conversations that are expected to take place next week in Geneva between the Americans and the Russians, the EU, of course, wanting to get in on the action there. All of that, of course, revolving, I have to say, around the politics of energy as well. Nord Stream 2, I had the chance to catch up uh, with Wolfgang Ischinger. He is the chairman of the Munich Security Conference. And he was essentially saying to me that Nord Stream 2 could be a major chip uh, that the Europeans and the Americans could play in these conversations with Vladimir Putin. Listen in to what he had to say. I think the pipeline represents uh, a major item of leverage for us. If we, if we handle it uh, smartly, uh, it cannot and will not be in the interest of Russia to shut down one of its, uh, you know, uh, uh, traditional revenue sources. If we have to shut down this pipeline project, um, uh, Russia will definitely lose, you know, tens of billions of, of dollars or euros going, going forward. So that cannot be in the interest uh, of Russia at all. In other words, threatening that if there are military escalation activities conducted by our Russian friends, they may need to, 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 uh, uh, to expect um, uh, European action, Western action uh, regarding the, the, energy, uh, the energy supplies from Russia. Uh, painful for us too, because we will probably suffer then even more energy shortages etc cetera, etc cetera. but it is it is an item of leverage i think russia has definitely has an interest to continue its uh, its income sources uh, from providing gas and oil etc cetera, etc cetera, to its uh, western european partners so it's we need to handle it carefully but smartly The politics of energy, of course, always fascinating to watch. I mean, it's seriously about the leverage, whether or not Washington over the last 12 months had any leverage when it came to OPEC plus. Seemingly, they did not. We heard from Alexander Novak over Christmas essentially being like, you know what, there's no reason for us to bow to pressure from Washington at this point. OPEC plus continuing its merry way with uh, with plans, um, as we saw uh, yesterday. And when it comes to the leverage that the Americans might have when it comes to Nord Stream True, bigger questions. Steve? The politics of oil. There is no oil without politics, as you and I know fully by now, Hadley. And it's it, quite frankly, it's part of the attraction, isn't it? Thank you so much, as ever, my friend. Yeah, absolutely. It's extraordinary. That's why OPEC is always so fascinating. I mean, you look at the characters and the players involved. That's why Hadley and I have both loved covering it so many times over the years. Right. I mentioned that Brent is dipping. Well, it's, it's dipping from the highs of last night, but it's not dipping from where we were 24 hours ago. In fact, it's significantly higher. I should just remind you that crude had an absolutely stunning year to the upside. In fact, the best year for WTI uh, since 2009. It gained 55.01 percent last year uh, as opposed to 2009 uh, some of you remember i remember 77.9 percent it put on um uh, in 2009 brent again up 50.1 percent in the year to date last year compared with 2016 when it put on 52 percent so absolutely huge moves to the upside well richard gory joins us now uh, who is the managing director at jbc energy asia uh, richard happy new year many uh, thanks for joining us 
Um, look, so we sit here deliciously at $80 a barrel on Brent as I speak here as well. I see as many people calling $100 a barrel. Um, well, in fact, I don't see many bears out there. And that's it. I see many people saying it could be here or it could be a lot higher. What is your call, sir? Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I think our call is that the market probably should move a little bit lower. So we would expect prices in the range of 70 to $75. So we think that the market is, market is probably a little bit oversold right now, uh, buoyed up by the overall energy crisis that is happening, uh, leading on from the developments in Europe and such. Uh, so we, we, we would expect to see Brent come down a little bit. And that's largely based on the fact that the market is going to go into a period of oversupply. And during that period, which would last for the next five months or so, we would expect inventories to grow. But of course, inventories are at a very low level. So that doesn't necessarily mean that we would see a, a strong downward correction. Uh, Richard, I had, I had a, a mild disagreement on air with, with someone who knows far more about energy than I do, and that was the Energy Secretary, uh, Jennifer Granholm. Uh, and she pointed out that because of COVID, US production had fallen. I said, no, actually, US production was falling before that because of the lack of spending uh, on infrastructure in the US shale industry as well. And again, we, we disagreed on various points there, I have to be honest. But, but, but is the US shale industry going to come back this year? Is the investment finally going to come back in a meaningful fashion? So I would largely agree with your sentiments uh, that you know investment has been the has been the real uh, problem for U.S. supply, and I think the investment outlook is still difficult. That said, we would expect U.S. Uh, shale oil production to grow quite considerably this year. So we see about a million barrels of additional shale oil coming into the market. Uh, obviously, that is going to be helped by the high oil prices. But but longer term, of course, you know, private investors, you know, they they look at hydrocarbons, they look at they look at government policy, and of course, it it is uh, it is worrisome. And so I, I think you're right in saying that, you know, the investment environment is difficult, particularly for the U.S. and, and other, other, let's say, Western nations. Talking about investment, can I ask you about the, the 400,000 barrels that are being pledged by OPEC Plus? Because some of the market think that they're going to struggle to provide that amount in coming months. Yeah, I think for February, they should be good. But I would agree, there are some early warning signs that we're looking at, uh, particularly coming from, let's say, the Russians, where we have seen crude oil production uh, from Russia actually uh, fail to increase and actually declining over the last two months. Now, that, that, that has been hidden a little bit by the fact that overall production, which is crude oil and condensate, has actually grown. But that would be one of the areas of concerns we would have. Uh, also, there are some concerns about Nigeria uh, and, of course, Libyan supply, which is, is already being affected this year by some uh, un, unplanned outages, but not necessarily, uh, you know, you, you, uh, something that was controllable. But yes, there, there is some supply side risks building in the market. Richard, I also want to ask you about price drivers here in terms of the geopolitics, because some of the wild cards are already cited, which means they're probably not that wild if we already know what they are. Iran, and as we talk about nuclear arrangements, but also any invasion by Russia of Ukraine. How much of this is priced into the oil market at this stage? You know, I think over the, 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 the last few months, there has been a lot, of, uh, a lot of support for oil coming from these geopolitical tensions. And I think that, you know, this has, this has basically supported oil probably to a level that was 
not in line with fundamentals. So I think that, you know, everybody has been predicting that the surplus is coming into the market, yet oil prices continue to go higher. Uh, so I think this is a little bit of a spillover from the, 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 the problems between the US and, and Russia and Europe over Ukraine. Uh, people have been very bullish on energy because of that. Um, and obviously, if you want to trade energy, buying oil futures is one of the easiest ways to do it. So that's how you create your exposure. So I think that is, you know, if we saw a resolution to that problem uh, where, you know, we have the U.S. and the Russians sitting down uh, next week. Uh, so if we do see some sort of resolution to this, then, you know, we may see oil prices softening. Richard, we know that there is a price at which consumers see it as a, a tax on growth, in which case growth is in jeopardy as well. We know also that the producers, a vast amount of them, need $90 plus to balance their domestic budgets over at their treasuries, let alone at their oil departments as well. Where is that equilibrium price and where is the price actually that we find problems for the world economy, for the Indian buyer, for the Japanese buyer who just say this is crimping our growth and as such creating problems? I think we're right there, Steve. I think at eighty dollars, you are really pushing. You are you are really pushing those uh, th those importers. Uh, if we were to see, you know, some of the supply fall out, uh, as discussed, uh, you know, um, this could easily go higher, and that would certainly crimp demand. So I think we are right on the borderline. I think you know a, a more reasonable pri reasonable price for oil would be between sixty five and seventy five dollars. I think that would allow you know producers to recover. Uh, you know, significant profits. Of course, that it, balancing the, the the books of an oil-producing nation is always a difficult endeavor. But I think you know, uh, if we go above eighty, we will definitely start to see some some impact on demand. Richard, thanks for the time today. Much appreciated. Richard Corey with us, managing director, JBC Energy Asia. European gas prices soared more than 30% on Tuesday after low supplies from Russia reignited concerns about an energy crunch in the region. It comes as UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak warns that there is a limit to how much help the government can offer to offset soaring energy prices and that support should be targeted at households that need it most. Coming up on the show, China's biggest domestic IPO in a decade kicks off in Shanghai and gets a warm welcome. And for more on what the spike in Treasury yields means for technology stocks, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. China's biggest IPO in a decade has gotten off to a strong start. China Mobile opened more than 9% higher in Shanghai. Emily Tan has the details. 
Solid debut for China Mobile. Shares in the world's largest telco operator by subscribers began trading in Shanghai and were up close to 10% at the open. The company raised $7.7 billion in its homecoming listing after being kicked off the New York Stock Exchange last year. China Mobile sold 845.7 million shares at 57 yuan 58, making it China's biggest listing in a decade. The fundraising total could rise to as much as $8.8 billion if the overallotment exercise is fully exercised. The telco operator plans to use the proceeds to develop 5G networks, infrastructure for cloud resources and intelligent ecosystems. The Hong Kong listed shares of China Mobile also got a boost after the company said it would buy back up to 2.05 billion shares worth almost $13 billion, helping to prop up the eight shares by more than 5%. China Mobile was delisted from New York last year together with China Telecom and China Unicom. All three are now duly traded on A and H share markets. Reporting from Hong Kong, I'm Emily Tan. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.